Right, keep the, uh, keep the passage open in front of you. Um, as Kenny said, we're going to look at chapter 11 and 12 today. But chapter 12 is very long, so I, I thought we'd just read chapter... Uh, sorry, chapter 11 is very long, so I thought we'd just read chapter 12. Um, can everyone hear me? Yeah. Michael, you hear me all right? Good. Uh, I want to start with uh, chapter 12 and verse 8. Because in chapter 12 and verse 8 it says, I heard, but I did not understand. Anyone else feeling that? Anyone else just listen to that chapter? Anyone else read chapter 11 and thinking, what on earth is going on here? Uh, I'm going to be honest. There will be things that we still don't understand at the end of this sermon. Like we're not going to talk about the numbers at the end of Daniel chapter 12. Because actually there are some things that are not important for us today. And, and that might be a bit frustrating. I, it's frustrating that I, I don't understand all of this. But actually what's important is the truth that we find here that God has allowed us today by his spirit to understand. So let's focus on what's important rather than getting to the end and thinking, oh, he hasn't explained this and he hasn't explained that. Let's focus on the truth we find here. Now, last week, um, Rob introduced us to the events of chapter 11. And the events of chapter 11 start in chapter 10. Uh, And in chapter 10, we started in the third year of King Cyrus. Now, you might remember Rob saying in the first year of King Cyrus, God's people were allowed to go back to Israel. They were set free. But the reality was that even though they were free from captivity, they weren't really free in their homeland. In fact, life was really, really difficult for them and was going to get even more so through the events of this chapter. Uh, And Daniel knows this. So when we found him in chapter 10, we find him in mourning, sackcloth and ashes and all that sort of thing. Now, remember that while he was in mourning, God's messenger, this man in linen, appeared to him um, and brought Daniel. He brought him a word from God. And that word was going to be all about two things. going to be all about a great war and all about what was going to happen to Daniel's people, God's people. And in chapter 11, what's going on is the man in linen is explaining all the details of this great war. Lots and lots of details. A four-century-long conflict in the Middle East. 400 years of war. And before we dive in, there's a couple of things I want us to remember. Two things that we need to bear in mind. First one is, uh, this all came true. All of it came true. All of the things that we're about to look at in chapter 11 are written in the history books. We can put, when we read about the kings of the south and the kings of the north, we can put names to those kings and dates to the battles that they fought. And in fact, the first readers of Daniel might well have been living in the reality of what was going on here. Um, and we're not, we're not going to go into every single detail today. There's no way we've got time for that. But if you're interested, the details are written down in historical books called the Apocrypha that support what it says in the Bible. It's not the Bible, but they are historical books that support So. Have a read if you want to know the details. A second thing we need to bear in mind. This is more, and Rob said this last week, this is more than just historical, physical battles. Behind all of this are spiritual forces. A reflection of the battle between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the devil. And we know this in the battles we face too, right, Rob? We quoted from Ephesians last week. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers 
against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And Rob reminds us that this battle has been won by Jesus. So let's keep these two things in mind as we read through. We're going to start in chapter 11. And chapter 11 is all about the true vision of the great war of wicked kings. It's a bit of a mouthful, I apologise. The true vision of the great war of wicked kings. Let's start in Daniel 11. I want to read verse 1 to 4. As for me, this is the man in linen talking, not Daniel. As for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided towards the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. So this man in Lynn has been with, with um, Darius. And that's important because in the first year of Darius, that's when the decree was written to release the people of Israel. It didn't happen until Cyrus, but it was written then. So it shows us that God had a part to play in releasing his people from captivity. And what he's doing now is telling Daniel the future for these people who are going to be released. All through this man in linen. And it's a future of being caught between two warring empires. And I'm going to summarise a few bits that I think are important. Um, but have a read. If you haven't had a read before, have a read through afterwards. It starts with the great kingdom of Persia, um, which we've come across in previous chapters. And we have three more kings that control this whole area. And a fourth king that's even more powerful. Now, his name was King Xerxes I. Okay? And he came to power in 486 BC. He tried to invade Greece and was defeated and died in 464 BC. And after him comes the king we saw in verse 3, right? And his name was Alexander the Great. You might have heard of him. And he defeated all of this area and became king. He became the new king of Persia. And actually ruled there until 323 BC. So we've done over 100 years already. And the problem was, he didn't have any children. So when he died, he didn't pass his kingdom on to his heir. Instead, his kingdom was split between his generals, his chiefs. Uh, And it turned into this. And this is where we get the kings of the north and the south. I apologise if this is boring. (laughs) It sets the scene. Now, kings of the south. In the south, you see here, in the grey... We have the Ptolemaic Empire, and it started with Ptolemy I. Now, he was based in Egypt, and he, he, he runs, he starts the kings of the south that we find in chapter 11. And in the north, we have, uh, starting off was Seleucius I. Okay? And he started off the Seleucid Empire, and he starts off the kings of the north. Are you with me? Are you with me? Okay, good, good. And over the next 300 or so years, okay, Basically, these kings are in constant battle with each other. They, they, they fight kind of in the middle. Now, look in the middle. We have Jerusalem, God's people in the middle. This is why it's so difficult. It's got a laser on it. Yes, here. Okay, God's people went back to their homeland and were constantly caught in massive war between this empire here and this empire here. So life was not easy for them. What would happen is one of the kings 
from the south or north would raise up and attack the king on the opposite side and either succeed or be defeated. And that's what goes on throughout the whole of chapter 11. Sometimes in verse, like in verse 6, they send their daughter to try and sort everything out. But that doesn't work either. And a daughter in, in, uh, chap- in verse 6, uh, she was called Bernice. She was poisoned. They could definitely make a TV series out of this. Got, like, there's definitely content in here for a Netflix series or something like that. Anyway, they keep going on and they, they go and they enter each other's fortresses and they steal each other's stuff. And they kill tens of thousands of people. And for a long period of time, the, the Seleucid kings, these guys, they were winning. They can't, I mean, they've got more, more space, so that makes sense. And, and battle after battle, there's a few things we find that come up again um, that kind of define what these kings are like. And they have their fortresses. The word fortress comes up a lot. They set up their fortresses. They're kind of stronghold. And those fortresses stand until someone comes and knocks them down. Uh, there's lots, it talks a lot about they do as they will. These are kings that do as they want. They're not going to do anything anyone else ways. They're not going to listen to anyone else. They do things as they want. And eventually they fall, they stumble, and they fail, even the most powerful of them. Then, in verse 21, comes the most evil of all. Have a look at verse 21 in chapter 11. One of the kings has been defeated, and it says, In his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. He's described as contemptible. People will not like him. People will hate the things he does, will hate who he is. And his name was Antiochus Epiphanes. We call him Ant, okay, for short. He's so crafty, he manages to make himself king, not because he is royal, but because he pays people. He says, you support me, and the people who he pays get him to be king. And he goes through and he does what no king has ever done before him. And he plunders and spoils and scatters, not just some bits, but even the most wealthy parts of the province, like Egypt, that no one's ever touched before. And no one can defeat him. And he's around for a lot of chapter 11. And up to this point, God's people, and even God, they haven't really been talked about. And they start to come into the picture, and it's not a good thing. It's not a good reason they're coming into the picture. Antiochus Epiphanes' attitude towards God is summarised in verse 28. It says, And he will return to his land with great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant. And he shall work his will and return to his own land. Um, One example of that is that on his way back from Egypt, when he's coming back with lots of money, he goes through Palestine and he finds the Jewish people rebelling against him. They're rebelling because they're not living the way he wants them to. And he kills 80,000 of them, men, women and children. The second time he tries to invade Egypt, look at what happens. This is written down here in verse 29. This is in 167 BC. Verse 29, at the time appointed he shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be this time as it was before. For ships of Kittim shall come come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw, and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the Holy Covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. He's having a tantrum because he loses. He doesn't win this time, and he has a tantrum, and he goes back to the people of God, and he murders them. 
And he was so against God that he actually started this murderous campaign on the Sabbath. And he doesn't stop there. Have a look at verse 31. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. What he did is he went to the temple of God and he smashed down the altar that people would have used to worship God. And in its place he built an altar to Zeus. Now Zeus was the god that he worshipped and not even any of the kings before him had worshipped this god. And on that altar, the altar to God, he sacrificed a pig, which was the most unclean of Jewish animals. So this is a man, this is a king that despises God. And he does everything he can to show that. And after that, he sets himself up as small g, God almighty. Have a look at verse 36. Says, and the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every God and shall speak astonishing things against the God of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished for what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other God for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honour the God of fortresses instead of these, a God whom his fathers did not know. He shall honour with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign God. Those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honour. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. And all this happened at the appointed time. God has planned to allow these things to happen in the future, in time, in his order, and he's laying this out before Daniel. This is what's coming. And in the middle of all this description of the evil acts of um, Antiochus Epiphanes, we see three responses. There's three responses to this contemptible evil. Falls into three groups of people. Group one are the seduced. Have a look at verse 32. It says, he shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. So there's people, there's people living in the area, their hearts are already against God. They're already engaged in a wicked lifestyle. And what he does is is Antiochus Epiphanes, he goes to them and says, well done. You're living the right way. You're standing against God. Come and join me. And he builds up his people engaged in wickedness. And they stand firm against God. Okay. Group 2, in the second half of verse 32, says, But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. This group, they're called the wise. And they're wise because they, they know God. They stand firm and they take action. They know that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And they do two things in verse 33. Two things. The wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword, by flame, by captivity and plunder. So they make lots of people understand. They share the reality of God so that people can make a choice. People can understand that that God's way is better than the way of these wicked kings. But also they stumble. This is not the same kind of stumbling as we saw with the evil kings earlier. This is a stumbling of persecution, of martyrdom. 
They're willing to suffer and die for the God they believe in. Verse 35 tells us a bit more about this. It says, Some of the wise shall stumble so they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. This is a stumbling that leads to refinement, to purification. It might remind you of what um, Peter says in the, in the New Testament. You have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Group two, the wise. And then group three, in verse 34... When they stumble, they shall receive a little help, and many shall join themselves to them with flattery. And I've called them the self-preservers. It's a group of people who join the wise, but through flattery. And basically what they're doing is they're joining the wise to save their own lives. And some of the wise grouped together in a campaign against Antiochus Epiphanes to win back Jerusalem. And these people are just joining with them because all they care about is themselves. Are they really wise? No. They are in one sense hiding from the wicked kings, but their hearts are not on God's side. So basically by standing up for themselves and caring only about themselves, they're still standing against God. So we've got three groups of people. They're either standing with God, group two, or standing against God, group one and group three. So my question is, in the face of evil, which one would you be? Which group would you be? How would you respond to the evil in this world? How, would you, how do you respond to the evil in our world and the evil in your hearts? Are you group one? Are you seduced by sin? Does the way of the world have your heart? Are you choosing to stand firm in wickedness and against God? Have you set up your fortresses, the things in your life that make you feel powerful, the things you find security in, the things that take away your time and money? Do you do as your will, living your way and not anyone else's? Do you stumble and fall and try again, but only in your own strength? Are you trying to set yourself up as God Almighty, standing against God? It might sound familiar. I think it's definitely the way of my heart sometimes. And in fact, the Bible tells us that all of us are born this way. All of us are born with hearts, with group one hearts. Or are you group two? Are you wise? Do you understand that wisdom is found through a reverent fear of the almighty God? Are you resisting the temptation of sin and standing firm? Are you characterised by your willingness to suffer and even die for your faith? Are you striving to make many understand the good news of the gospel, following the great commission of Jesus to go into the world and make disciples of many nations? High standards. Well, maybe you're in group three. Do you come to church just to escape from something else? Is self-preservation your aim? Do you block out or endure whoever's standing up the front talking about Jesus just because it's better than what's outside? The reality is that you're standing against God. So we've got three groups. And we're going to keep talking about those three groups as we continue. So we go back to chapter 11. We're not finished yet. And we've got chapter 12 to do. Are we okay? Sure? Okay, good. Through the rest of chapter 11, Ant 
he continues his reign and there's one last big battle that basically in verse 41 it comes together in the land of Israel and leads to thousands and thousands more being killed. Now think of the people in this situation. They've been stuck in 400 years of war. And they've been experiencing this reality and they might even be reading about it if they're reading the book of Daniel. And they're going to ask themselves, how long, how much longer is this going to go on for? What's going to be the outcome? It comes in chapter 12. What's going to be the outcome of this? Is it worth it? Is it worth standing firm when so many of us are dying? Why don't we just go and join Antiochus Epiphanes? I think we ask similar questions, right? When we realise that our hearts are group one hearts, we say, well, what hope is there for us? When we drowned out by the wickedness of the world, we say, well, what's going to be the outcome of these things? What's going to be the outcome of the war? The war is going on at the minute in the Middle East and in Europe. When we realise how difficult it is to be in group two and stand firm from God and we say, is it worth it? Is it really worth it? And I imagine that our persecuted brothers and sisters in countries like China and North Korea ask the same questions. And so we need to find some hope. And the good, that's a good thing about chapter 12, because chapter 12 brings us hope. Chapter 12 shows us that it is worth it to stand firm for God. And at, at the beginning of chapter 12, we're kind of moving. We're moving from more sort of concrete historical events to kind of more spiritual events. Chapter 12 is not yet finished. Chapter 12 kind of talks more about the spiritual battle that's going on. But it shows us, it shows us that there is hope in God's deliverance. So have a look at the first part of verse 1a. It says, at that time, Michael, the great prince, who has charge of your people, shall arise. And there shall be a time of trouble such as there has never been since there was a nation till that time. That doesn't sound very hopeful. But then look at 1b. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book of life. Here is hope. Here is deliverance. Here is the end goal for those who are in group two who have been standing firm. Here is deliverance for those who realise that their hearts are like group one. Here is hope for our persecuted brothers and sisters. The hope of eternal life. For those whose names are written in the book of life. But that's not the only outcome. Because there's another outcome in verse 2. It says, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Some to everlasting life. And some to shame and everlasting contempt. The outcome is for those who stay in group 1 and group 3. The outcome for those who join in wickedness. The outcome for those who live with the mighty small g God, they awake to shame and everlasting contempt. They've spent their lives pouring out contempt on the living God, and so they are then separated from him in everlasting darkness. Those who follow the contemptible one get to live in everlasting contempt. So I suppose the question is, well, how, how do we get our names in this book? How do we become, how do we get our certificate to say that we are group two people and can get to everlasting life? Because the reality of it is none of us deserve to have our names written in the book of life. And none of us deserve to be in group two. 
And for it to be possible, we need to look to the one who showed us what true wisdom looks like. Right? The only one who ever has or ever will live as a perfect group two man. And the one who spent his whole life standing firm for God. What's he called? Jesus. He showed us how to stand firm, right? And he had his own spiritual battle. Let's look together at Matthew. Matthew chapter 4. Someone could shout out a page number. Sorry? 809. And here we find Jesus showing us how to stand firm in a spiritual battle. It says, then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said, If you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And again the devil took him up to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory and said to him, all these I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. So when the devil says to Jesus, you live your own way, you're hungry, eat. Jesus says, I'm going to live God's way. His words are what matters. And when the devil says to him, well, go on, you perform, you show people who you really are. Jesus says, that's not the way. My way is one of suffering. And when the devil says to him, look, I can set up a massive fortress for you. Jesus says, I'm not here for that. I'm here to worship and serve God and him alone. And he was the one who was the true word of God. And he stood firm on God's words through a ministry of humbly serving others, including his closest friends, in his way, which is the way of true righteousness. He bowed to his father's will, not his own will. He followed his father's will and stood firm even to death on a cross before he was raised to eternal life. So that there is hope for those who stand against him. So that there is hope for our wicked group one heart. So that there is hope for those hiding in group three. This is how our names are written in the book of life. This is how we become certified, wise group two people. We believe in Jesus. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And believing means you're recognising, right? You're saying, I'm living the wrong way. My hearts are in the wrong place. My heart is in the wrong place. I'm sorry, God, for standing against you. And you turn around and you walk into his loving arms that were stretched out and nailed to a cross for you. And then you will find true wisdom and true hope. And our trust in Jesus, our names being written in the book of life, means the hope of deliverance from the wickedness of this world. And chapter 12, verse 2 gives us more detail on that. 
This is the reality for those who God has made it possible to be in group two. Verse two. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and eternal contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Everlasting life. In the presence of Almighty God, radiance like the brightness of the sky, shining like stars forever and ever. Isn't it beautiful to think that those who have spent their life shining the light of God's truth in such darkness and wickedness, those who are standing firm for him, persecuted and trampled upon and stumbling and crying out, they get to spend their lives shining like the brightness of the sky and the stars forever and ever. Resting in the presence of Almighty God. Here is hope. But even with this hope, we know all too well, right? We still live in a world of darkness. And we still cry out, don't we? Like the questions at the end of chapter 12. We want to know when we get to experience this hope. We want to know when when is our final deliverance going to come? And so we've come full circle. We're back in verse 8 again. And Daniel didn't understand, and so he cried out to God. He said, I heard, but I did not understand. Then I said, oh my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? God didn't answer his question. God answered him with verse 9. He said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Go your way, Daniel. It doesn't matter when this is going to happen. Just keep going. Keep on standing firm. Keep on living a life of faithfulness, just like you did at the beginning when you were taken into a foreign land, when you trusted that God would be with you, even with your diet. Go your way, Daniel. Keep on seeking me like you did when faced with Nebuchadnezzar's dreams and the writing on the wall. Keep going. Keep on trusting me like like when you stood firm against the wicked decrees and were faced with a den of ferocious lions. Just keep going. And if you believe in the God of Daniel, when you're faced with the battles of this world and you might even feel like you're under spiritual attack now, God wants to say to you, keep going. Keep standing firm. He says, I am with you. I will uphold you. Keep walking in righteousness, the way that Jesus taught, guided by the Holy Spirit. Keep going in the wisdom that God has given you. Keep shining the light of Jesus into the darkness of the world. Ask him to use you. Ask him to use you to turn many to righteousness. Ask him to use the darkness of the situation that you're in to show his glory. Stand firm. Because at the end you shall rest. Look at verse 13. At the end you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. Jesus says in John 14, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. Amen. 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 Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, we're sorry that our hearts are often against you. That often we choose, we choose to stand with the wickedness of this world rather than with your way of righteousness. And I thank you, Lord, that there is hope for us in the deliverance that you gave us through the blood of Jesus. That you make it so that you look upon us and see us as righteous because of what Jesus has done. And Lord, I pray that we would be challenged today to live a life standing firm for you. To want to turn many to righteousness. To trust you. To trust your timing. To trust that one day we will stand in our allotted place with you. Forever and ever. Everlasting life. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Let's just have a few minutes to respond. To think about where will your allotted place be? Are you going to wait to eternal life? Or are you going to wait to eternal shame? Spend some time crying out to God, asking for forgiveness, asking him to change our hearts, bringing some of the battles that we face to him, and ask him to help us stand firm. And if after we've had some, if you want to talk more about this at the end, come and see me, come and see Kenny, come and see Rob. Come and talk to someone. So let's just spend a few minutes reflecting in our hearts now, and then Kenny's going to come and continue with our service.